spoke the first night a little bit about the vastness of the Buddha's vision, cosmology, you know, of many world systems, many planes of existence, countless lifetimes. And even if we have some growing confidence in the teachings of the Buddha, based on our own experience, still probably for most of us, kind of cosmological perspective probably lies out of the domain of our direct experience. There's another way, though, of understanding the vastness of the journey. And that is that it is a journey of discovering the very nature of our own minds, the nature of awareness, the nature of consciousness, the journey inward rather than the journey outside. We begin to explore how the mind, how our minds, create suffering for ourselves, for other people, and through the understanding of that, begin to understand how we can be free. And the beauty of the practice is that we do this very pragmatically. This is not a question of philosophy or theory. It's a question of looking very directly at ourselves. <coughs> Marcel Proust had a wonderful line among the millions of other lines he had. He said, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeing new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And that really captures the sense of what we're doing here. It's not about seeing new objects, seeing new landscapes. It's about changing the way we see things. Really developing the eyes of wisdom. There are many different Buddhist traditions with different teachings, different metaphysics, different methods, but all of the different traditions converge in one understanding of what liberates the mind. And the Buddha said it many, many times. You can read it in the text. He said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself. The supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. And elsewhere he said, this is the deathless, the unconditioned, namely liberation through non-clinging very simple statement. Some centuries later, in the development of Buddhism in India, there was a very great uh, adept named Talopa. Uh, he was one of the great masters of that time. And his student was Naropa, who was a great pundit, a great scholar, but who was motivated to become liberated, not satisfied simply with scholarly uh, accomplishment. 
Naropa taught Mapa, Mapa taught Milarepa, and so some of the great Tibetan traditions come come out of this lineage. And there's one uh, very clear instruction that Talopa gave Naropa in the same vein. He told Naropa, you are not fettered, you are not bound by appearances, you are not fettered by experience, you are fettered by your attachments, so cut your attachments. It's the same message, liberation through non-clinging. It's not about rearranging experience, it's not about having some other kind of experience, it's about cutting the attachment. In a more modern context, one yogi came in an interview once with a wonderful image for how the mind suffers and how it can be free. He came in and said, suffering is rope burn. <laughs> you know, it's just that image. If you're holding on tightly to a moving rope, what happens? You get rope burn, you suffer. How to be free? let it go. What's important to understand about this very profound and yet simple teaching, liberation through non-clinging, is that it's not about some far-off goal. It's not that we need to practice for 20 years or 30 years or 50 years or 10 lifetimes and maybe someday we'll glimpse it. This is actually what we're practicing now. This is the practice that we're doing in every moment. Or we can practice practicing it in every moment. Liberation through non-clinging, letting go of the grasping at the different things that arise. The Buddha called this practice practice of liberation, the heart's release. And we can feel it in the heart, we can feel that contraction when we're holding on, when we're grasping, when we're attached, and the heart's release when we let go of that attachment. So the instruction is very simple. The question is, how can we accomplish it? How can we actually do this in every moment, or attempt to do it, have this intention. One way, which we've talked about and we need to be continually reminded of it, is through the clear seeing of impermanence. Because when we deeply, clearly see the changing nature of things, that deconditions the holding on. Where can we find impermanence? Where do we have to look for it? Anywhere. Wherever we look, we'll find things changing. And if we had, you know, massive telescopes and looked at galaxies and clusters of galaxies, we'd see the changing nature. Down to the smallest subatomic particles. Everything is in constant movement, constant change. We can see it in the cycles 
of birth and death, you know, of the people we know, the beings on the planet. We can see it in terms of the various experiences in our life. Think of just your best moments here on retreat, or maybe your best moments in your life outside. Just the very best one. And then think of the worst, just the low point. Where are they now? You know, we go through this cycle, this roller coaster, and we feel good, and we feel bad, and we have good moments, and we have difficult moments. And we get so invested, we get so attached in the moment, whether they're good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant. <coughs> and yet they're all impermanent, they're all changing, they're all so ephemeral. We can see impermanence especially in the context of the retreat, in the very momentariness of experience. You know, when you're with a breath, just the sensations, the many, many sensations contained in one breath. You listen to a sound. It's not just one thing. You know, when you listen carefully and silently with a still mind, the vibration, the thousands of vibrations going on within one sound. Wherever we look, if we look, impermanence is so clearly observed. But there's one very strange aspect of our delusion, the delusion that we live in. And that is that even though we know this, that when we look back on all our past experience of every kind, we look back and we know for ourselves, it's not, it's not that somebody is telling us that all of our past experience has vanished, that it's all from this perspective like a dream. We know that. And yet, even with that understanding about all of the experiences we've had, when we look ahead to the future, we are continually dazzled by the array of possibilities. And it's quite astounding. It's something we can know so clearly about everything that's gone before. Somehow, when we turn our attention to what's coming, we completely lose sight of it. And we live our lives in this constant sense of expectation and hope that some future experience will somehow do it for us. Some future experience will finally make us happy. It's quite surprising. <laughs> I mean, just think, you, especially those of you who have been on retreat, but it applies in our life as well. I mean, how many thoughts have you had about the things you're going to do when you get out of here? <laughs> you know, the restaurant you're going to go to, or the friends you're going to meet, or the great romantic weekend you're going to have. And we reinforce, we strengthen the sense of self, of I. We strengthen the sense of clinging in that anticipation, in that delusion that somehow this future experience 
is going to be different than everything else that has happened in our lives. So we have to pay attention to what is really great common sense. We have to apply what we already know to our lives and how we're living. And draw on the wisdom of it instead of continually being seduced over and over and over again. That's the nature of samsara. We could just get continually caught. It's through seeing and remembering and contemplating and this very direct, immediate observation of the changing nature of things. Again, we have to bring it into our our experience. To know it as a concept or intellectually to agree is of very little use. We have to train our attention so we are really seeing it moment after moment. Because that's what loosens the grip of attachment. That's what loosens uh, the intensity of this very strong habit we have of clinging, of grasping, of desire. The liberating power of seeing impermanence and seeing it deeply was expressed in a very startling statement of the Buddha. And it's one that, really outside of a meditative context, hardly makes sense. He said, it would be better to live for a single day seeing the momentary, seeing deeply, clearly and accurately, the momentary arising and passing of phenomena than to live a hundred years without seeing it. I found that quite startling in terms of a statement of what's of value in our lives. Everything we value in our lives, we could live for a hundred years, is not as valuable as living one day and deeply, as we're talking about a very penetrating vision here, of the momentary nature of things. So why did he say this? Because it's through the seeing of that that the mind is liberated, is free, freed from this endless cycle of wanting and becoming, of rebirth even within this lifetime, as many, many times we are. So don't undervalue the importance and the benefit uh, of looking in this way. It can be done in some very simple and ordinary ways. You know, this does not take you know, some great mastery of the practice. Even as you're just walking about, not even doing walking meditation, just as you're walking about, pay attention to how experience keeps arising and vanishing. It's like water over a waterfall. You know, a sight, a sound, a sensation, a movement, a thought, a feeling. Moment after moment, watch the current, watch that flow of experience that doesn't rest for even a moment. This is 
This is very obvious and very simple. In the meditation practice itself, and this is a little more demanding because it requires very close attention, really observe carefully with each arising object. In that very moment, observe what happens to it. I think is Sharon or one of us mentioned that, you know, our reporting to Upandita, the meditation retreats, very demanding, very exacting, because we needed to report what happened within a sitting, what arose, you know, pain arose, a thought arose, a feeling arose, and also tell him what happened to each of those objects when we observed it. Well, unless we pay careful attention, we really don't know. And so having to report it in this way demanded a very strong mindfulness. You can do that. You can do that for yourself. You know, as you said, even if it's just for short periods of time, for five minutes at a time, pay attention to what happens to each object. The impermanence will become vividly clear. The Buddha gave very explicit guidance in this. You know, and it's really about liberation, it's about enlightenment. That's, that's at the heart of the Buddhist teaching. It's not simply about getting more comfortable in our lives or feeling a little better about ourselves. It's about freedom. This is what he said. Whatever feelings arise, whether pleasant feelings, unpleasant ones, or neutral ones, and they're arising in every moment with every object, it's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, abide contemplating impermanence in those feelings. Contemplate the fading away, the cessation, the ending of those feelings. Contemplate the relinquishment, the letting go of those feelings. Contemplating thus, we do not cling to anything in this world. When we do not cling, there is no agitation. When not agitated, we personally attain Nibbāna, or freedom, or enlightenment. So again, it's very unambiguous. You know, it's really simple. Contemplate the arising impermanent feelings that are coming in every moment. Contemplate the impermanence, the relinquishment, the letting go of them. As we let go, the mind becomes peaceful. As it becomes peaceful, we each personally attain Nibbāna. So everything we do in the practice, you know, all the tools, all the instructions, all the methods, are not ends in themselves. They are all in the service of this mind of no clinging. This is what we are practicing. And so from time to time, as you're sitting, you can remind yourself. Sometimes I do this, and I sit, and it's, it's a powerful moment. I'll just have the, the thought or the phrase in my mind, mind of no craving, and actually do it, or take it as an instruction, or the mind of no clinging. And even if it's just for a moment where you feel that release, that's a powerful moment. It gives us a taste of what's possible that the mind can be released. 
Well, the Buddha, being a compassionate fellow, didn't simply stop with this very clear and basic instruction. Free the mind from clinging or attachment. Out of his compassion, he also went on to point out all of those arenas where we do cling, in case we're missing it. In case, and we do miss it a lot, so we should really be thankful. He kind of laid out for us, okay, if you want to practice the mind of no clinging, these are the areas to look. The first arena where we get attached a lot, where we cling a lot, is big area, is attachment to sense pleasures, attachment to different sense objects. This is in a way the last of the hindrances which I didn't get to the other night. (laughs) You know, there's pleasant sight and sound and pleasant feelings in the body that we like and pleasant thoughts and reveries and good tastes and just our world. When it's pleasant, as it is often in a human existence, the tendency is to cling or become attached to these pleasant experiences. Really looking or investigating this attachment to sense pleasure, to sense object, reveals a lot to us about the power of addiction. This, this addictive quality in the mind is very strong and very deep. We start to see a lot about the power of fascination, the power of enchantment, you know, where we just become enchanted by different objects. There's a wonderful story of the Dalai Lama. He was at a conference in Los Angeles. And he was staying in some hotel you know, a mile or two away from where the conference was. So every day he was picked up and driven to the conference. They went down the same route every day. And on that particular street there were a lot of stores with you know, the latest technological gizmos in the windows. And so he went by one day, and he went by a second day, and he went by a third day. He said at the conference, by the end of the week, that by the end of the week, by the fourth or fifth day of passing by these things, he found himself wanting things that he didn't even know what they were. (laughs) (laughs) They just looked interesting. Now that's the Dalai Lama. (laughs) So I think it would behoove us to pay attention to our own minds. An image that's come up for me a lot in my meditation, which has helped me get a handle a little bit on the force of desire in wanting. Sometimes it feels to me especially when the practice is going somewhat smoothly, and you're just sitting and being with the breath and sensations, it feels sometimes like being on a highway. And I'm just kind of cruising along on the highway. And then there's an exit and a sign by the exit for some metaphorical amusement park, whatever our particular amusement happens to be, you know. It could be some sexual fantasies, it could be some future planning, it could be whatever. 
So there's this sign by the exit. And we see this sign, oh, I think I'll go down there. <laughs> and we go off the exit and we go down the road and spend however much time we do in that particular little mind world. And then we kind of wake up, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be in the highway. <laughs> we, we get back on. And we go along, we do this about 10,000 times. And then we learn a little bit in the sign, we see the sign for the next amusement and the exit. And again, we're pulled off, but we catch it quicker. We're pulled off and maybe we don't go all the way down the road. We just get off the exit and get right back on the highway. With even more practice, having done that many, many times, we can get to a place where we're cruising along the highway, we see the sign, you know, for the amusement, and we just know, oh, there's a sign, and it doesn't even tempt us. We just go cruising along. That's the mind free from this addiction, you know, of, oh, just let me taste that one. Even when we know, having tasted it, endless number of times already that it's not really going to satisfy us it's just another temporary little diversion and it's very powerful and very insidious it's and extremely interesting to observe I was doing a retreat just a few months ago doing a self-retreat in my house and I, I sit upstairs and I was coming downstairs to go do some walking meditation and just between the time I got up from sitting on the stairs there was a millionth of a second thought cup of tea cup of tea <laughs> <laughs> it was like it was like just you know just like that and somehow my whole body turned <laughs> to go to the kitchen to make myself go. And I was just amazed. And that was one tiny little thought. And my life in that moment was redirected. Think of thoughts that are more powerful, you know, than that kind of... This is a very, very powerful force in our lives. You know, and so we really need to look carefully not with a sense of judgment or being down on ourselves about it, it's just out of interest in freedom. You know, can we look at it? Can we see? Can we sometimes practice letting go? Now, in our, in our culture, to a large extent, renunciation has quite a not very appealing connotation. <laughs> you know, it's not really a cultural value. <laughs> but from another perspective, and it's really, I think, the perspective of wisdom, we can understand the great gift of renunciation. So just for example, imagine yourself, uh, you know, you're home sometime and you're watching TV, and just imagine the mind that would want everything that's advertised. You know, all these endless commercials. And just imagine the kind of mind that, oh yeah, I want that, I want that, I want that. It would be horrendous, it would be a hell well. From that perspective, we see that it's the addiction, it's the craving, it's the wanting, it's the suffering. And it's our ability, in that context at least, 
to sit back and basically be relatively uninfluenced by it because we appreciate the freedom of that, the ease, the ease of not buying in. In that respect, we see that renunciation is not some burden, it's actually a relief to feel that we don't have to act on every little advertisement in the mind, every little commercial. It's even more subtle. I mean, this goes so deep. We have so many desires that we don't even know we have until they're not fulfilled. I'll just tell you just a little anecdote about this. Last, last year when I was teaching in Russia, in the past, food had been very scarce, and so even to get the food together for retreat was a major operation. This last year, actually things have gotten better in terms of availability. It's quite expensive, so it's still a lot of hardship for people, but it's there if you have the resources to buy it. So the food at the retreat was really quite good. You know, it, was, it was kind of reminiscent of my grandmother's cooking. It was borscht and lots of nice food. But one day I come down to breakfast, and all there is is this small little plate of coleslaw. And that's it. That, that was the whole breakfast. And I just kept... <laughs> coleslaw for <laughs> <A> breakfast <laughs> I just watched my mind do this little <laughs> and it was a great lesson because I didn't even know that I had a desire for a fuller breakfast until it wasn't there and then it just kicked in and fortunately there was enough um, attentiveness that I was interested in what my mind was doing. I just saw it go on this little trip and then just relaxed back behind it and enjoyed the coleslaw. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a very good lesson, you know, in just how deep desire is the driving force of samsara. It is what keeps us bound. And so we need to pay attention. If, if we have the aspiration for freedom, we really need to look at this. In addition to attachment to kind of pleasant sense experience, we also get attached to pleasant meditative experience. And this becomes just another more subtle version you know, of the same force. We may get attached to you know, great peace or calm or stillness. Sometimes even more difficult to see than that is the fascination we can have just in this unfolding process. You know, I don't know whether you've had this experience yet or not, I'm sure. Some of you have, and maybe others have had a taste of it, that the meditation can actually be fun. I mean, when the mind gets concentrated and we overcome the more gross aspects of the hindrances, you know, you sit, and it's very compelling because we're just in this process in a very clear and, and connected way. But that itself can be a trap. We can get so fascinated in the unfolding process 
as if the next moment of meditative experience will somehow be the resolution of it all. And so we're leaning into it. It's what I call the in order to mind. You know, with this experience in order to have the next one, in order to have the next one. And it's very interesting. And it gets to be very microscopic in our understanding. But it's also a trap. It's also another kind of attachment. One time I went to Pandita with a report. My practice was in a very good and refined space at that time and I was just noticing just the most microscopic movements you know of energy in my mind and so I gave my report feeling and I was really quite happy and I gave this report and he just looked at me and he said you're too attached to subtlety <laughs> and it was the perfect response you know. and here I thought this is what I'm supposed to be doing you know, getting, and in a way we are, I mean, we want to look carefully, but again, it's not about fascination with more and more subtle experience. It's about the mind of no clinging. That's what we need to be practicing, whether it's in the realm of ordinary sense pleasures, whether it's in the realm of meditative experiences, whether it's in the realm of understanding the very nature of this process, Always the instruction is the same. Liberation through non-clinging. Okay, so this is the first arena of attachment that we can look at. Attachment to sense objects, to sense experience. The next arena of attachment, which when unexamined, is the cause of a huge amount of suffering in this world, both in the world at large and our own uh, personal world. And that is the attachment that we have to views and opinions. So we have views and opinions about almost everything. tell you one story about this because it's so illustrative of the pattern. When I first came back from India, I had been there over uh, about a seven-year period, although back a couple of times for a few months, <coughs> very immersed in this particular lineage of teaching, you know, the Burmese the <coughs> method. And so I was really absorbed the teachings. Came back in that first summer back in 74, I was teaching at Naropa Institute, and it was, um, you know, this Buddhist, this Buddhist uh, college in Boulder. And as I was teaching there, I saw a sign for a talk given by Dujam Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan lamas. He was the head of one of the great lineages, very respected and revered master, really considered to be a great enlightened being. And on the poster announcing the talk, they said, Dujam Rinpoche 
incarnation of Sariputra. Now Sariputra was the chief disciple of the Buddha. And so they were whoever made up the poster. At least somebody thought that he was the incarnation of Sariputra. Well, from the Burmese perspective, once you're enlightened, you no longer take rebirth. And I was completely immersed in that understanding. You know, that this is the fruit of enlightenment, no longer reborn in this samsaric realm. So I looked at this poster and it's like my mind went on tilt because I could not reconcile the two views. Here, I firmly believe that enlightened beings don't get reborn. But here was somebody who was clearly considered to be quite enlightened, and the poster at least claiming to be the rebirth of this great disciple of the Buddha. So I just, I didn't know what to do with that, and it created a great inner conflict, which was resolved in a wonderful epiphany, which has served me ever since. I realized that I didn't have a clue. <laughs> I realized I had no idea whether he was the incarnation of Sariputra or not. And it was such a relief to let go both of my opinion or even the thought that I needed to have an opinion about something which I manifestly did not know. <laughs> It was very freeing. I would suggest that a great many of our opinions about things <laughs> are really about things that we don't know. Really know, deeply know. And so just to look, I mean, when you consider the world, you know, how many wars and conflicts have been fought because of people differing opinions or views about things, even religious, spiritual views. I mean, it's absurd. But it's not seen. You know, and when it's not seen, it's a very powerful force. All of the sectarianism that exists you know, throughout the world and within Buddhism, it's quite amazing how strong this attachment to viewpoint can be. <coughs> It doesn't mean that we never have or we shouldn't have a viewpoint. Because we do, and in order to live in the world, we reflect our conditioning, our background, our education. But can we let go of this strong attachment, this strong clinging to it, as if this is the right way, the one way, the only way? It's a real liberation for the heart. It takes seeing it clearly. So there's attachment to sense pleasure. This is an area where we cling, or to meditative experience. Strong clinging to views and opinions. The last arena that we cling, that I'll talk about, is the deepest. It's the most strongly conditioned in us. It's the most difficult to see through. And that is the very strong attachment we have to the idea of self, of I. 
This is so deeply ingrained in our perception of who we are. Our lives revolve around a notion of someone here, of some self, of some center. And the jewel of the Buddhist teachings, you know, and the great beauty of awakening is seeing through the illusory nature of self, of ego. And so a big part of our practice is to really see how it is that we create this sense of self. Because it's not that it's there and we have to get rid of it. Which sometimes people uh, view their practice like that. Well, I have this self and somehow if I do the right practice, it'll no longer be there. What the Buddha was saying is that there never has been self, that it's an illusion of perception. And we simply have to see how it is that in any one moment we create it, we create that illusion. There's a, a very nice little saying by a writer named Wei Wu Wei, who was actually an Englishman who lived in Hong Kong, and very uh, into Eastern and Buddhist and Taoist thought. His books are wonderful. One of his little aphorisms are the belief in the self is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. <laughs> That's sort of how we're living our lives. We're barking up this tree that isn't there. We're living our lives from the perspective of an ego self and it's all a hallucination of perception. So there's a lot to say about this. This could be you know, many talks. But tonight I'd, I'd like to focus in on the ways in which, in any moment, we actually create this hallucination. We create this sense of self. And we do it in any moment that we identify with the arising experience. So I'll give some examples. very often we identify with the body. It's a very basic identification and attachment we have. And it's often the first response of somebody else, you know, who are you? Okay, this is me, this kind of sense of solidity here. But when we look more closely, we can really break through that identification and attachment. Because when we look closely, we begin to see that the body is not a thing in itself. When you look closely, you see that there is nothing there that could possibly be called I or mine. A good friend of mine had uh, laser surgery uh, for a fibroid tumor. You know, and they go in, it's quite amazing, the technology, they go in with this tiny little incision and they're doing, the, the surgeon's actually watching the screen, you know, through a little miniaturized video camera now where they cut, they cut away the tumor. Well, the, the reward of going through this operation besides getting rid of the tumor is that you go home with a video of the inside of your body. You know, the, 
you can actually see from the inside. Well, this person, this friend, really was not that interested in watching it, but I was very interested. <laughs> and it was quite amazing, because it was like being on the inside, and you could see the organs and the muscles and the blood and the, you know, the snipping away of the tumor. And it was such a radically different perception of the body. You know, for some reason, when it's all nicely packaged in skin, <laughs> oh, that's me. But when you see what's actually there, didn't look like me or her at all. You know, do we identify with the liver? You know, or the mind? <laughs> we have such a superficial perception of what the body is. And we could take it even further. I mean, just imagine if you were looking at it microscopically on the level of cells or atoms. The whole notion of body completely disappears. I read one statement about this. It said if you took away all of the space in the body, the amount of matter that would be left would be the size of a particle of dust. So who are we? You know, is this what we're claiming to be I, to be self? It's only because we're not seeing clearly. It's just a very superficial way of viewing that we get caught in this identification and so live in the delusion Yes, that the body is who I am. The body is me. We don't, we don't actually even need to watch this video. Because just in meditation practice, in something as simple as the walking practice, when you are very attentive on the level of changing sensations, and initially, mostly we're walking and we feel, yeah, there's a foot, there's a leg, there's a body moving. But when the mind is quiet and you just drop in, just to the level of feeling the sensations, the perception of the form of the body disappears. And all there is is, is the very clear and vivid experience of the momentariness of sensation of, of that energy. The body becomes an energy field, not anything solid at all. And there are times in the practice also when all perception of the body disappears. You know, you're just sitting and there's only awareness. And so through the meditation practice itself we get a very uh, transforming understanding of what this actually is, and it loosens our attachment. We need to do this, because to live our lives with this strong attachment to the body as being <coughs> self, as being I, as being a person, you know, in the <coughs> conventional way that we do, has some very big consequences in our lives. When we're very attached to the body, to this concept of it, rather than the reality of it. Or attached to other people's bodies. What happens? That attachment becomes the cause and condition of 
fear of loss, fear of death. If we weren't attached to the body, we'd be a lot less fearful. So we need to see, we need to investigate. We create a sense of self in those moments when we're identifying with the different thoughts that are arising in the mind. It's not only identification with the body that creates self, it's also identification with thoughts or stories or images. The sense, I'm thinking. You've probably gotten a very clear sense by... To what extent we really live in the story of ourselves, <coughs> not in the experience, but just in the stories that we're making up about experience. We live in the identification with these stories, with these thoughts. And it's thoughts about our lives, thoughts about other people, thoughts about our spiritual journey. I'll just, just a couple of examples. So from, from Yogi Land. <laughs> that first retreat with Upandita, it, it was a wonderful retreat for the creation of stories <laughs> because it was so intense. Going along, everybody's working very hard. And then a few weeks into the course, I see all the people that I think are the really good yogis have little notebooks. And I just see them writing all the time in their little notebooks. And I started thinking, hmm, Upandita gave some special instruction to these good yogis, and he didn't tell me. I must not be doing very well. And I really went off on a trip, a story about that one. But then a week or two went by, and I saw all these yogis who I thought were not the very good yogis, you know, and they had the little notebooks. <laughs> so then I thought, oh, I must be doing so well that I don't need a notebook. <laughs> and my mind just was going back and forth. And it had nothing to do with anything. I mean, we had to report in the way I said, and people just, in order to help them remember, were writing, writing things down about their experience. Upandit never said anything about the notebooks. It's just so easy for us to live in this world of projection. You know, we just make up, <laughs> make these things up, and then live in those worlds. What's helpful to see is how often we do it. It's not just limited to time on retreat. Often on retreat it's revealed clearly, which is one of the great benefits but it's really happening a good part of our lives. I have one more little story. <laughs> I was doing walking meditation. In a very slow, the same course. I was outside. I look up the window of the room Upandita was staying, and I see him watching me through the walking. 
so I got even more mindful. <laughs> I'd slow down even more. So I'm walking back and forth, as mindful as I can, but kind of with one eye. <laughs> and five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes go by, he's still watching me. And I keep walking. And about after twenty minutes, a half an hour, I kind of look, I, I had no idea why he was you know, keeping an eye on me for so long. So I looked more carefully and I saw it wasn't Upandita at all, it was a lampshade. <laughs> but for that 20 minutes, <laughs> I was living in that world. We create a sense of self, a very strong sense of self, when we don't see thoughts as simply being thoughts. It's just this arising, passing phenomenon in the moment, but when we invest these realities, we get lost in those mind worlds. So there's a strong sense of self there. We create a sense of self when we identify with emotions. It's not only the body or different sensations, it's not only thoughts. And emotions, in, in a way, are one of the more difficult things to disidentify with. Because in our lives, it's perhaps the thing we most personalize. You know, we can see thoughts coming and going, maybe we have a sense of the body not being quite as solid as we uh, imagined. But when we are feeling angry or sad or happy or excited, that's who I am. I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm depressed. I'm angry. There's so much self that's created in this identification with emotion. And we take it even a step further. We don't even, we don't even settle for I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy. We then build it even stronger. I'm an angry person. I'm a happy person. We, we further solidify. And all of this is a hallucination. We are building a superstructure of self, this skyscraper of ego, of I, on top of a set of momentary changing conditions. Anger arises, sadness arises, happiness arises due to causes. Certain conditions come together, these emotions arise, conditions change, the emotions pass. There's no one there. Anger is angry. Love loves. Fear fears. Each emotion is doing its own thing, functioning in its own way. Can't, and this is hard, this is really hard to get. But through the practice, maybe we get glimpses. When we settle back in a state of awareness, of mindfulness, can we see sort of the arising of an emotion, perhaps conditioned by a thought or a memory? Given that condition, the emotion arises. We're not pulled into it. We're just seeing it for what it is. Certain feeling state. It comes, it goes, it washes through, and there's no contraction. 
And this is not a denial, it's not a pushing away, it's not saying, oh, I don't feel anything. It's totally allowing for it all, but without that added movement of identification with it. It's a whole different way of understanding. Like what Proust said, seeing with new eyes. The poet Rumi had a great, he's wonderful, I don't know, for those of you who haven't read Rumi, it's a real treat. He's a great Sufi mystic poet, but very, uh, very non-sectarian. One of, one of his poems wrote, what I want is to leap out of this personality and then sit apart from that leaping. I've lived too long where I can be reached. <laughs> just, we have lived too long where we can be reached. Can we take the I out of our experience? Can we stop creating it at least so much? and see that it is a mental fabrication. It's not about something that is really there. Well, the most subtle level in which we create the sense of I and the sense of self, even more subtle and more difficult to see clearly than emotions, is the identification, the very, very deeply conditioned identification we have with awareness itself. Because even when we see all of these other phenomena as arising and passing and perhaps empty of self, you know, and just dependent on conditions, but through the identification with awareness, we create the sense of a witness, of an observer, as someone apart from experience. And so we create the whole world of duality <coughs> in that identification. This is one of the reasons I've said in some of the groups <coughs> that for me I, I have found it helpful to look at experience, or to talk of it, to language it in the passive voice. So sounds being heard, thought, well, sounds being heard or known thoughts being known, sensations being known. Because for me that takes the self out of the knowing. It's not that I'm knowing a sound. It's just a sound appears and is known. A thought appears and is known. A sensation, whatever it is. And it begins to point to the impersonality of awareness. Awareness doesn't belong to anyone. And that can be the abiding in it without that added identification of I'm knowing, I'm aware. Liberation through non-clinging. Non-clinging to sense experience, non-clinging to opinions, not clinging to the sense of self. One way of understanding this very difficult uh, idea of selflessness, or an example which might, which might uh, elucidate it a bit, 
is that of a rainbow. You know, when you go outside after rain, there's a rainbow in the sky. There's a, there's a wonderful moment. It's usually a moment of great delight and it's something of great beauty. And yet, when you really investigate, is there anything which is the rainbow? Is there any rainbow thing that exists? No. There's a coming together of conditions, of light and moisture and air, and when the conditions come together in the right way, there's an appearance of a rainbow. But it's not that the rainbow is an existing thing in itself. It's merely an appearance arising out of conditions. Once I was on Maui, which is wonderful rainbow country, and uh, we went down to a blowhole, you know, which is a formation in lava where there's a kind of uh, underground, underwater cave with a small hole in the top of the cave, so the water comes rushing in, the ocean comes rushing in, and the pressure forces up the water through this blowhole. And if the, if the sun is right, if the light is right, every time the water came rushing up, there was a rainbow. But then a moment later, you know, the water fell and the rainbow disappeared. And so I was just sitting, watching this rainbow, gone. It was so clearly an appearance out of changing conditions that had no inherent reality, no inherent substance. And it didn't, it didn't at all detract from the beauty of the rainbow. But it was just seeing it clearly for what it was. Well, each one of us is like a rainbow, which I think is a nice image. There's an appearance of a self, of a person, out of the conditions that come together, conditions of mind elements and body elements, come together in a certain way, it looks like Joseph and each one of us. But when you look very carefully and investigate, you see that there is nothing really there to hang the name Joseph on. It's convenient. I'm not saying we should do away with the conventional realm. We need it. We operate in it. But if we don't see through it, we get attached, we cling, and then we suffer, because it does not reflect the deepest reality. could go on endlessly, <laughs> you know, and so there's this very deep uh, resistance to uh, perpetuating that pattern, <laughs> because so often I would be sitting, you know, two hours, three hours, four hours. <laughs> anyway, 
all of this can be summed up in one very clear teaching of the Buddha. He said, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Whoever has heard this teaching has heard all of the teachings. Whoever puts this into practice has put all of the teachings into practice. And whoever whoever has realized this has realized all of the teachings. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. This is not a philosophic statement. This is an instruction. Now this is really coming out of the great compassion of an awakened, enlightened mind, of seeing the way that we create suffering, and seeing the way to be free. And so as you do your practice, whether it's on retreat here or in one's life, our practice is always coming back to this essential point. We're not practicing for experiences or for states or for something to happen. We're practicing disengaging the gears of attachment. Just moment after moment, whenever we remember, whenever we're mindful, we're practicing that mind of freedom. So let's sit together for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.